Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing all right, Robert, but I've definitely been better. Yeah. It's been a rough day. Yeah, yeah, man. It is uh, the, the day after a really horrific school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's weighed on, I think, most people's mind. And it doesn't really have much to do with Kentucky government or politics. I mean, it kind of does because, you know, we have guns in the state, too. Uh, and we have shootings in the state, too. But uh, yeah, just really tough to focus on a lot of other stuff today. Mm-hmm. But we do have a show to, to bring you guys today. Um, we had a guest, Lamine Swan, who is running for state house in the 93rd district in Lexington, southeast Lexington. That's a new district. The 93rd had been in southeast Kentucky, kind of down in, I think, kind of like Bell County area prior. And it has moved into Lexington, where there has been a lot of population growth. It's in like the Tates Creek area. Uh, we'll talk more specifically about where exactly it is in the interview. Uh, Lamine and I, I'm pretty sure, actually ran on a student government ticket when we were at UK together. Uh, which was kind of funny. So whenever I saw he was running, I was like, hey, I know I know that guy. So he's he's a really cool person, though. Um, he is um, a black man who has a disability, who's running uh, with those front and center as uh, his identity, not shying away from it at all. We talked to him about that. We talked to him about his district. We talked about why he's running and what he hopes to represent when he gets there, uh, the issues he's passionate about and all that kind of stuff. I really enjoyed talking to Lamine today. Jasmine, how'd you think it went? Yeah, I thought it went really well. Um, he brings a really unique perspective to Frankfurt, and so I, you know, wish him luck in his race in a brand new district. Absolutely. Before we get to that interview, though, we do have two things we want to talk about. The first is that we're finally getting to talk about Daniel Cameron running for governor. That was something that was announced a couple weeks ago. We wanted to talk about him, what we think are his, you know, who he, who he is, how he got to this position where he's now running for governor, and, uh, you know, what we think his chances are. So we're going to be talking about that. And then also, there was a killing by law enforcement in Louisville. It's a very strange situation. All, you know, all killings like this are tragic, are bad. They need to be talked about. They need to be discussed because they are public policy issues. But this one's got a lot of strange pieces to it. So Jasmine's going to be talking to us about that. Uh, the United States Marshals killing Omari Cryer uh, in Louisville. So um, without any further ado, let's get to talking about Daniel Cameron. All right, Jasmine. So a few weeks ago, Daniel Cameron announced that he was going to be running for governor. He joins a, a field that's already pretty crowded. It already includes uh, two of Kentucky's elected statewide officials and Ryan Quarles, who is the commissioner of agriculture, and Mike Harmon, who is currently the state auditor. When Ryan Quarles declared, we decided to dig into his background, and you know we're going to do the same thing with Daniel Cameron. Like Quarles, even if Cameron is unsuccessful in his bid to become the Republican nominee for governor, it's likely that he's going to be with us in some form or fashion for a long time coming. You know, he's a pretty young person who was just elected for the first time, and it's likely you know he's involved in politics going forward for quite a while. So knowing some more about him is probably good for anybody that's interested in public policy here in Kentucky. We did not do a Mike Harmon deep dive, did we? Uh, you can draw your own conclusions uh, from. <laughs> From that, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, maybe you know, maybe Harmon Mintum will start in the in the GOP primary. I don't anticipate it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so Daniel Cameron was born and raised in Elizabethtown in Hardin County. He played football at John Hardin High School and later walked on to the University of Louisville football team. And he played during the season that the Cardinals won the Orange Bowl. I think they beat Wake Forest that year. It was Charlie Strong was the coach? Or no, Bobby Petrino was the coach. No, uh, yeah, wasn't Charlie Strong. Charlie Strong won the the Sugar Bowl. 
Bobby Petrino in the Orange Bowl. That's right. Uh, and, and the reason we mention it is because he mentions it all the time. <laughs> he talks about uh, playing for the University of Louisville in football and walking on quite a bit. But I, one thing, I was like looking for highlights or evidence that he ever played, and I couldn't find his name on any roster anywhere. I, you know, I don't think he's making it up, but it is, you know, it's a little bit. Remember when Rocky Adkins talked about playing basketball uh, in, uh, you For know, Moorhead. At, it, he was a starting point guard at Moorhead, and it got him, it got to be a little bit of an issue because Joe Sanka tried to rib him about like, I don't think you started that much, man. You didn't average that many points, and Rocky Adkins got kind of mad at him. Uh, I'm not going to try to poke the bear about Daniel Cameron's football career like that, but uh, you know, couldn't find his name on a roster. Um, okay, more seriously, Cameron was a McConnell scholar at the University of Louisville. If you don't know what the McConnell Scholars are, it's a very generous scholarship that's given to students who excel at social studies. It's, uh, you know, uh, political science, a lot of people go into law, a lot of people go into politics. Um, it's named for Kentucky senior senator Mitch McConnell, and he's very involved in the program. A lot of people who've graduated out of that have gone on to become politicians, in, including lots and lots of conservatives in Kentucky. Michael Adams was a McConnell scholar, now the Secretary of State. There's lots of people who work in McConnell's office who are McConnell scholars. Lots of people who uh, have gone on to have pretty significant jobs in D.C., both in staff and in government service in different varieties. Uh, Lots of people who come out of that McConnell scholar program who become very important Republican officials across the country. And that was Daniel Cameron's, uh, uh, you know, experience as an undergraduate. He went on to law school, finished there, uh, and then he clerked for Gregory Van Totten. Is it Tatenhove or Tottenhove? Do we know? I've always heard Van Tatenhove. I believe you. You would you 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 talk about this guy probably more than I do. So Gregory Van Tatenhove, who is a federal judge in Kentucky, Van Tatenhove was appointed by George W. Bush and has served the Eastern District of Kentucky since 2006. I think it's fair to say that Van Tatenhove is very conservative. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, he's definitely conservative, but I I wouldn't say he's like one of these like liberty conservatives. He's a moderate conservative, probably, and like often fair on the bench. Mm -hmm. um, But often, you know, he he ruled in favor of the plaintiffs um, who sued who sued over church COVID restrictions and you know things like that. But that was one of the things I noticed about his background is he draws a lot of religious cases. And he rules in favor of religious people a lot. Or, you know, I might have been looking at, at bias sources. Um, but, you know, I you mentioned one of the cases I wanted to bring up, uh, which was the, the folks who wanted to, church services to, to resume resume during the COVID-19 pandemic, like as early as, as May 2020, mm-hmm. over the governor's orders not to. And he ruled in favor of them. Uh, back in the day, he ruled in favor of the Ark Encounters tax exemptions. A lot of people had sued over that being a violation of church and state, and he said no. Um, and he also ruled that Matt Bevan could continue blocking people on social media. That was later uh, overturned, but the other two weren't. So, uh, yeah, the, he was uh, he's responsible for the, the Ark Encounter getting its tax incentives, and he, uh, you know, he got, his ruling led to church services being able to be held during the pandemic. So that's that's Gregory Van Tatenhove, who Daniel Cameron clerked for right out of law school. Then in 2015, Daniel Cameron was hired by Senator Mitch McConnell as his legal counsel. According to reports, one of Cameron's largest responsibilities in the two years he worked there was shepherding President Trump's judicial nominees through the confirmation process. Um and it's been said that he worked on the nomination of Gil- Neil Gorsuch, who is now on the Supreme Court. 
Um, and, and that's what he worked on when he was there. That's a pretty big deal job, I think, right? Uh, not, a, not a lot of people work on those, and those are very high-stakes uh, endeavors. Uh, so so kind, of a, kind of a big deal, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, how involved Cameron was in anything while he was in D.C. is, is based on self-reporting by McConnell's office. I was basically like, what did he work on when he was up there? And then whatever they said was, you know, what, what we have to go on as the truth. Um, now, Mitch McConnell probably has a political reason for, you know, uh, saying one thing or another about Cameron's status when he was in the office, uh, or at least they did back in 2019. Um, so, you know, I don't know about take it with a grain of salt. He did have reason to, to you know, exaggerate potentially, though. Um, but, you know, uh, Democratic senators were likely to, to have heard from Daniel Cameron uh, about Neil Gorsuch, and they didn't raise any flags uh, when, when McConnell's office said that, so it's, it's likely pretty true. So Cameron left McConnell's office in 2017 uh, to go into the private sector as a senior associate with Frost Brown Todd, which is a big law firm in Kentucky. Uh, big law, like, I don't know, those are high paying, very busy jobs where you work on big cases, people who can afford big, important lawyers who, who work all the time and bill a lot of hours. I mean, it's lawyers who represent like employers and corporations um, and work on like high level, like mergers and acquisitions and stuff like, but it's, it's civil defense. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's very expensive. You, you don't walk in there uh, if you're me uh, and, and ask them to like, write <laughs> yeah, no, me, me neither. <laughs> Uh, in 2019, Daniel Cameron declared his candidacy for attorney general. At that, at that time, uh, you know, he, he was in the private sector, but he had a lot of experience working in McConnell's office and, and then before that as a clerk. Um, but yeah, he, he was pretty young still. Uh, he took on Senator Will Schroeder in the Republican primary and dispatched him pretty easily. He won by 10 points. Uh, in the general election, he then defeated former Kentucky Attorney General and Speaker of the House Greg Stumbo by almost 20 points. Um, you know, we were you know recording the show at the time um and, and i don't think either one of us was really all that surprised by either of these defeats at the time it seemed like daniel cameron was a, a very highly favored son of mitch mcconnell which uh, i think led us to think he was favored in the primary and then we knew uh people who were not named andy Bashir were going to have a tough time winning in uh in the 2019 general election um i was I was pretty surprised at the margin Daniel Cameron was able to rack up against Greg Stumbo. Uh, what, what did you think about that twenty about Daniel Cameron in twenty nineteen, either in the primary or the general, Jasmine? I thought that him winning the attorney general's race was the most likely thing to happen in all of those state <laughs> races. So I thought maybe that, the commissioner of agriculture race, but yes, it, yeah, it's very high. Well, okay, yeah, you're right. Ryan Quarles' reelection is is the most obvious, um, but I thought that. Andy Bashir had a chance, but I kind of felt like the governor's race was a toss up. Um, and then I felt really good about Democrats winning the secretary of state. Um, and that didn't happen, but I, I thought Daniel Cameron was going to beat Greg Stumbo handily. I don't think a lot of people were excited about Greg Stumbo being the attorney general candidate for the, the Democrats and his name, I guess was kind of getting old to people. And Daniel Cameron was, young and like this new Republican party face. And so um, that outcome didn't surprise me. I will say we talked to everybody on the Democratic ticket that year. We talked to all six candidates uh, and uh, nobody 
mentioned, hey, are you going to give equal time to the Republican except for with Daniel Cameron? Uh, there were some people who said, oh, that was a great interview with Greg Stumbo. When are you going to interview Daniel Cameron? Now, that only came from like one or two people. But that kind of goes <laughs> to say, like, I mean, there was some excitement about Daniel Cameron among people who listened to my old Kentucky podcast, which was, I mean, I found that a little bit surprising. Uh, so so that's kind of where Daniel Cameron was when he was running for office in 2019. Yeah, and well, I'll also say, at least for people, a lot of people in Louisville, a lot of attorneys I knew knew him and knew that he was fairly conservative, but believed him to be a really like nice and reasonable guy. And so that's kind of the reputation that he had going into it. Yeah. 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 Uh, whether or not he's been able to maintain it, something we're going to talk about here in just a second. But before we <laughs> get to that, I did want to say that like when he was running for office, there was a bit of a hiccup, and that's that attorney generals must have practiced law for eight years prior to serving. And during the election, Cameron faced a pretty significant legal challenge based on his experience. Cameron argued that his clerkship counted as practicing law, despite that the rules for federal clerks say that clerks should refrain from practicing law. Regardless, Cameron ended up winning that challenge and, and then went on to be elected. Do you remember, do you remember that challenge? I, I feel like you said at the time that it didn't stand much of a chance, and I think, I think you were right there. Yeah, because practicing law to me likely means like eight years uh, since you've been admitted to the practice of law. Yeah. And, and I think that is what was ruled in that yeah. case. Yeah, you, you're, you're right there. That's exactly correct. And, and, and doing a clerkship, even though you are not practicing, um, you are doing a lot of legal work. And I think that that was a, a point made in the case as well. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and since becoming attorney general, Daniel Cameron has stayed in the news by attacking abortion rights and by challenging Andy Bashir's authority to make safety rules about the COVID-19 pandemic. And at one point, he even combined these two, saying that abortion should not be performed during the pandemic. So, um, you know, hit, hit the high notes, uh, things that are able to be, um, you know, to gin up his base and, and to keep people excited, um, which is not to say that's not exactly what Andy Bashir did when he was attorney general. Um, he spent a lot of time suing Matt Bevan over a lot of different kinds of things, got Democrats excited about about that was like the main check on on Matt Bevan when he was the governor. And I think one of the things that Daniel Cameron wants to frame himself as as the major check on Andy Bashir. Um, while he's the governor. So so that's definitely the way that he's positioned himself. But, you know, of course, Daniel Cameron was also the attorney general in 2020 and was heavily involved in many of the legal challenges against police officers during the, during the aftermath of the Breonna Taylor killing. It was Cameron's office who ultimately impaneled a grand jury, which led to charging one officer with three counts of wanton endangerment. That was the only charges that were brought against a police officer in the killing of Breonna Taylor. Cameron said that the grand jury decided on those charges, but later some grand jurors came forward and said that those were, were the only charges presented by Cameron's office and that the attorney general's office never presented an option to consider homicide as a charge. This led to a lot of stuff, not the least of which was a lawsuit. And we had uh, Kevin Glogauer on the show to talk about that at the time. Um, they tried to remain anonymous and tried to sue the attorney general's office. Um, I, I think that that lawsuit's over now. Um, I don't know if there was ever anything that really came from it. Obviously, nothing really all that substantive. Uh, but it was a big deal at the time. Um, and it was something that we talked about quite a bit, right? Yeah, we, we spent really a year mm -hmm. talking, kind of talking about 
the protest, but also Daniel Cameron's involvement and the indictment and lack thereof other indictments. Um, and then the grand jury issues that followed him that a lot of time on this podcast <laughs> devoted to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing that happened in the wake of that is uh, th- three grand jurors filed an impeachment petition with the Kentucky House of Representatives. Now, it it needs to be said uh, that the petition was right after a bunch of other citizens filed a petition to impeach Governor Bashir over COVID policies. So there was a little bit of like tit for tat going on there. The grand jurors remain anonymous throughout the process, which is pretty controversial on being able to bring an anonymous impeachment petition. But one of the things we were learning during that time is that there aren't really a lot of rules about impeachment petitions uh, and and that basically anybody can bring one for any reason in the House, according to Republican interpretations of the law, has to hear them. Uh, Cameron was obviously not impeached and eventually forwent seeking the legal fees from the petitioners, which uh, the impeachment committee asked him to reconsider that. They were like, um, please do collect these fees so that we can that can act as a deterrent to people filing uh, these types of impeachment petitions in the future. But I think Cameron actually did eventually forego that. <clears throat> Man, Jasmine, I honestly forgot that Daniel Cameron facing an impeachment uh, i remember andy Bashir did but uh yeah, yeah i had kind of forgotten the daniel cameron petition as yeah well. yeah but it did happen uh that was a really i mean 2020 there was a lot there was a lot going on uh, there was a lot going on during that time um but yeah he he survived an impeachment uh petition just like just like andy Bashir. Another thing that happened in 2020 is that Daniel Cameron spoke at the Republican National Convention. That's a big deal uh, for, for some people. I think it's a big deal. Other people are probably like, who cares? Uh, you know, speaking at a, a the, the major national convention is is a big deal, um, I think. I, I think, you know, it was widely expected that Cameron, wa- Cameron was the main man waiting in, uh, to take over Mitch McConnell's Senate seat once, you know, Mitch McConnell decided to retire. However, you know, Cameron has thrown his hat in this gubernatorial election, and I think that puts him at pretty significant risk to lose. I think he would have been coasting to re-election as attorney general, but now won't face that election as he decided to switch to, to governor, and he's going to have to run in a primary against a several very strong candidates. It's unclear to me, like, why he's doing this, unless, you know, he's maybe no longer the favorite candidate to take over McConnell's seat. McConnell's been pretty quiet. Uh, he hasn't really said anything about Daniel Cameron since he's gotten into this race a couple weeks ago. I would have expected McConnell to be maybe even in the announcement video because um, he's such a big supporter of Cameron or was in 2019. Uh, but that has not been the case this year. And, and uh, you know, Joe Sanka actually tweeted something to say that there might have been another favored candidate for that Senate seat, uh, which may be why Daniel Cameron is switching switching gears here. So, Jasmine, what, what do you think about Daniel Cameron's chances in 2023? both in the primary and then if he makes it through in the, in the general. Well, I guess first this move wasn't surprising to me. I think when he was elected attorney general, everyone said like, here's, here's the next governor or, or Mitch McConnell's successor. Um, But I don't think I was ever really sure which seat he was going to go for. And especially, I guess it's been a couple months now, there was like a a really short interview where he was asked about running for governor. And like, he had this like weird smile on his face. And I was like, oh, he's definitely going to run. So the announcement wasn't surprising to me, especially considering that interview. But his chances, I would 
put him second to Ryan Quarles, probably. For right now. I mean, and, and I think that there's a couple more people that are likely to get in there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the the other rumored person is, is Kelly Craft, who will have a lot of money to work with. But I would probably say if if she gets in and it's those four, I would say Quarles, Cameron... Kelly Craft, Mike Hartman, probably. So I wouldn't. I I would be surprised if one of these like Liberty people, whether it's Savannah Maddox or one of the other new folks, uh, gets w- doesn't get into the gubernatorial race to at yeah, least give that, that wing something. Mm-hmm. And um, then Max Wise has also been rumored. Yeah, and, and Max Wise I think has a too. has a chance to like maybe maybe be that wing's favorite candidate. You know, there's yeah, a way that- he's kind of like the. The parents' rights education guy. Mm-hmm. So you know if so so let's say like those four that you just handicapped. If you were to throw in unnamed uh, Liberty candidate, like w- does that change your ratings at all? Ooh. Do they go at the bottom or what? Yeah, probably because I mean that's kind of how we got Matt Bevin. You yep. had four candidates, two of which were popular in their areas and pretty moderate Republicans that split votes mm-hmm. and we got Matt Bevin yeah, <laughs> coming exactly. out of the primary. And, and so that would change uh, my prediction. Yeah. I think. I, but I, I don't know. It, do you think that something like that would move Cameron even further to the right? Or do you think he would kind of try to stay where he is? Yeah, I think I I I'm I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the the thing about this is you're you're exactly right that um and, and that to me was why I thought this was a surprising move because I think you you're gonna have Ryan Quarles who's gonna be sucking up a lot of the traditional Republican vote, uh, mm-hmm. and and you're likely gonna have like Kelly Craft with a lot of money who either gets in or doesn't um, depending on how she feels like her money is going to be able to impact things. And then you have this unnamed Liberty candidate and there's going to be one, you know, there's going to be whether it's Savannah Maddox or it could be Max Wise decides to, to run with the, the support of those people. Maybe they run one of the freshmen who, uh, you know, wants a bigger, bigger deal job uh, right away. There's a lot of them who are going to win in November, um, you know, there's going to be somebody from that wing who runs, and maybe it's Matt Bevan again. Now, I, I think that that's unlikely, but it will be somebody mm-hmm. um, who who is willing to or who is able to to gain those people's votes. And if you split the traditional Republican vote three ways, that is a path for the Liberty person to win. And so Daniel yeah. Cameron getting into this race, you know, that really puts at risk that wing of the party's ability to get the nomination. Uh, so that that was why it was a little bit surprising to me. You know, you don't have to make it all the way to uh, to the election. And it could be that these people kind of duke it out and then one of them or two of them drop out before the primary is actually held. We saw that in 2007 on the Democratic side when Jonathan Miller, who was very favored by young folks, dropped out and, and supported Steve Bashir, which led to him getting the nomination in a pretty crowded field. But yeah, I, it, it is to me, that's that's the main reason why it's why it's surprising. Yeah. So Jamie Comer had an unsuccessful gubernatorial bid and then became a congressman. And so I, I don't know if to Daniel Cameron, it's like, well, 
there's probably no harm even if I lose. Like I still have a future. Um, you're right, but at, but for Daniel Cameron, he has nothing but time, right? He's he's very young. He's in his 30s. Yeah. Uh, he could run for re-election as attorney general, coast to victory. You know, Andy Bashir wins another term, and he's able to run again uh, in 27. If Andy Bashir loses and the Republican wins in 23, he only has to wait till, you know, 31 when he's still going to be in his 40s. Uh, to to run for for governor again if that's what he really wants to do he also in that meantime has a lot of chances to run for senate you know who knows how long Rand paul wants to to continue doing this uh or mitch mcconnell's pretty old he's probably going to step down and even if he has a favorite son if daniel cameron who who has high name recognition runs against him especially if he's a two-term attorney general he's he's got a good chance to win there too so he has a lot of other chances to do a lot of different things i think that this is exposing himself to a significant risk of loss early in his political career that can be really debilitating so you know who knows who knows? I mean, there there are a lot of egos um, yep. in politics. Too. Yeah, and and I think re- Republicans see that they have a lot of power right now, and everybody kind of wants their bite at the apple, including a lot of people uh, who who have been waiting a long time, and some people who think that they that their time is now. So, you know, uh, we'll see we'll see we'll see what happens. Uh, all right, that's that's you know fun contemplating about the future of politics let's move to a, a topic that's a lot more serious and a lot more you know a lot more somber and that's that uh this killing of omari crier in louisville by the united states marshals last week so jasmine tell us what we need to know about that yeah so u.s marshals fatally shot omari crier in the chickasaw neighborhood which is in the west end of louisville on early friday morning a little bit before 9 a.m and so Since then, information has been trickling out, but it's been happening kind of slowly. Um, So here's what we know so far. So a U.S. Marshal Task Force um, came to a home at 845 in the morning. According to people present on scene, Cryer was um, at a friend's house and then ran from the house. LMPD says they were there that the Marshall Task Force was there to serve an arrest warrant, and the warrant was allegedly for domestic violence, strangulation, and assault. Um, they said that an altercation ensued, and a deputy marshal shot Omari Cryer. We also know that he was shot more than once, but that was really all of the initial information that we had. Um, We've since learned that LMPD's Public Integrity Unit is handling the investigation. And um, I will also note here that kind of as the same time as all this is happening, Vice News just did a series on LMPD that included an interview with a an interview with a current sex crimes detective who basically gave like a whistleblower interview who said that they wouldn't trust the public integrity unit of LMPD to investigate. So uh, take that (laughs) for what you will. So LMPD chief Erica Shields held a press conference and she said that Cryer had a gun, um, but would not say if he pulled a weapon on the marshals or fired any shots or anything like that. Um, Her statement was, He fled from an apartment. There was a brief foot pursuit. They ran upon a fence. Subsequently, the marshals opened fire, striking Mr. Cryer. Um, 
So what that sounds like there, there, you know, there's no allegation of him pulling a gun, of, of him threatening officers in any way. It sounds like fleeing. Um, yeah. <clears throat> if any of that was present, it's likely that she would have included it, right? And so the omission of it means it's highly unlikely that any of that actually occurred. Is that fair to say? That's what I would assume. Um, but but we just don't really know. You know, th there just wasn't a lot of information provided. Um, according to Shields, um, it seems that the Marshals Task Force also included LMPD officers. And at the time of the press conference, she did not say how many times Cryer was shot, but then stated he was shot twice. Um, I think she said from the front in a Metro Council budget hearing. So she didn't state that in the press conference, but stated it to Metro Council later that day. Um, so that those are basically all the details that we have at this point. And Steve Romines, who is a, a prominent defense attorney, he's also a civil plaintiff's attorney. He represented Kenneth Walker, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend. He also represented David McAtee's family in 2020. He tweeted that LMPD has been using marshals to serve warrants in order to avoid body camera requirements. That's a, a pretty big allegation. Yeah, it definitely is. It's a big... And, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I, I had seen marshals being utilized to serve, like, out-of-state fugitive warrants and things like that. Um, but the arrest warrant here was for domestic violence strangulation and assault those are those are state charges so those yeah. aren't federal charges so it wouldn't be a situation where he's being federally charged so the marshals would be the ones arresting him mm -hmm. um those are state charges and i don't know if there hasn't been anything said if it was for like charges in jefferson county or anything like that so why marshals are involved is incredibly unclear, yeah. I think. Yeah, it, that was, I think, my first question was, like, why are U.S. Marshals... Because that was my first guess, right? was, like, well, if it's a federal issue, then Marshals yeah. are sometimes involved in, in serving those warrants. But then the next thing you hear is that, you know, okay, no, this was... These uh, charges are, are not federal. Um, and so why was the U.S. Marshal there? I think a lot of people had that question, and there hasn't really been a good answer that we've received so yeah, far. Yeah, and I would think the the one situation where marshals may be involved for state charges is when they involve out of state charges or some kind of out of state extradition and so like they yeah. need to get them back to the place where they face the charges or or something like that um but i don't think we've seen the arrest warrant or anything. Um, we also haven't seen any body camera. It does sound like there is body camera in this case. According to Erica Shields press conference, it, she said it would be released in you know, in the coming days or something to that effect. Um, but I don't know if it's going to be from LMPD or from a marshal. Um, so I just, I just don't know. And to, what Steve Romines tweeted, of course, that's just like one person's anecdote um, that they've been using marshals to serve warrants to avoid avoid using body camera. The Courier Journal stated in an article that as of October 2021, marshals were supposed to wear body cameras in 
pre-planned operations. So I don't know if the marshal had body camera. I don't know. I, I think there are a lot of questions surrounding Cryer's death that people need answers to. Protesters gathered on May 23rd and held a balloon release and marched. And I, I think we, do, we just need to get be able to get the information and have transparency faster <laughs> than we do. Yes, that that's that I think is a huge, huge deal. And in, in that in the wake of 2020, a lot of people who, you know, kind of gave police the benefit of the doubt, I think, um, really learned about a lot of other people's experiences where, you know, they didn't give the police the benefit of the doubt and a lot of the truth about what it's like to live um, as, you know, a black person in West Louisville and what the policing looks like there. Uh, became a lot more obvious to people. And, and I think that eroded a lot of trust between the police and, and citizens throughout the whole city. Um, and, and, you know, I think that there have been some steps that have been taken by the government to try to do something to rebuild that trust. But when something like this happens, and <clears throat> there is this much evasiveness about answering questions like, right. why were there U.S. Marshals there? What are the charges? What is going on here? Who has the body cam? Why can't we see it? These are basic questions that deserve answers quickly, um, like they should have already happened and they haven't happened. So I think we're a lot of people who have learned, okay, uh, you know, who maybe two years ago would have been like, well, there's probably a good reason they're not doing that are no longer saying that that are they're now saying, okay, this smells bad. Uh, and, and based on what we know, it probably is bad. And I think that's where we're at as a city. Um, and, and I really think that the police department needs to answer these questions right away. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, the mayor finally terminated the LMPD chief, and, and we did this search, the search that wasn't public for a new chief, and we bring in someone new, and I don't really think she has shown um, that she's making any progress, at, at least the kind of changes that so many people in the city were looking for from the police after... Brianna Taylor was killed and David McAtee was killed. Um, I don't think she's really shown that any of those changes have been made. I, I don't think we're seeing, you know, increased transparency mm -hmm. or or anything as of yet. We, we certainly aren't right now in this specific case, definitely. Uh, and, and that leads people to think that a lot of the other things probably haven't seen that level of transparency either. It, it definitely doesn't do anything to rebuild the trust that was lost yeah. since Brianna Taylor's killing. Yeah. Something I think that has changed is Brianna's death took two months for people to grab onto it and realize what happened. Um, and start investigating further. And so with this one, I think that a lot of local media have been covering it as extensively as they've been able to. There just hasn't been a lot of information out there yet. Um, but I, I hope that we start paying attention sooner. And, you know, that's why we're talking about it the week it happened instead of two months later. Yeah. And I, I think, too, like when when you think back to the beginning of the Breonna Taylor situation, uh, the Breonna Taylor killing was, you know, people, the, the police were like, oh, you know, there was a gun. People were shooting at us like they made it, which there was a gun. They did get shot at. Kenneth uh, Walker was in jail. Yeah. Kenneth Walker went to jail. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff that was going on in, in a story that the police told that when a lot of people read it, they said, OK, well, 
I guess that makes sense. And now that type of story is not going to pass muster. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and there needs to be real transparency, the truth about what happened, and that needs to happen right away. Um, and that hasn't happened. And that's really disappointing um, to kind of see everything that happened uh, yield so little, um, you know, the next time something like it happened. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's where we're at in Louisville, Kentucky, with uh, relationships between the police and what, what happens when they kill people. So, huh. all right. Well, uh, yeah, that that's a not not an not a happy story uh, no. by any stretch of the imagination, but an important one. And Jasmine, I really appreciate you bringing all the detail, like what detail we have uh, yeah. to people. So uh, that's important stuff to to do. Um, yeah, well, well, that's what we wanted to talk about on the show. So let's go ahead and get to our interview with Lamine Swan. Lamine Swan is the. Democratic candidate for the 93rd House District in Southeast Lexington. Lamine is a first-time candidate and a lifelong Lexingtonian who has worked as a consultant and public speaker, um, and a con- as well as a consultant on many progressive causes. The 93rd is a new district in Lexington. Um, before 22, the 93rd was in Eastern Kentucky, so it's a little different now. Um, so Lamine Swan, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually a second time candidate. I I ran in 2004, which was the 88th, Mount uh, oh, Sherwin Stevenson. And this one is when the GOP had a stronghold on that district for about a decade. Yeah. Robert Benvenuti's when he was there. Yeah. The Ballotpedia yeah, yeah, stuff only goes back yeah. to like 2008. <laughs> so I didn't I wasn't yeah. able to see your name. 2000, in there that. 2004. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, yeah, you would have been really yeah. young back then. You would have been like 26. Yeah. 20. Okay. Wow. Yep. Well, there yep. you go. All right. Well, very cool. And, yeah. And the earlier made sure that was said when they did not endorse me <laughs> <laughs> about my age. So, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, no. Yeah, that would have been. Well, and you know, we have a couple of very young um, candidates this time around. We're probably going to be mm-hmm. talking to some of them pretty right. soon. So. Right. All right, really cool. Well, thank you for clearing that up for us. Sorry we missed it, uh, but yeah, that's good to know uh, for for you know for people who are looking for perspective on what you're going to be able to do in Frankfurt. So, you know, we asked a lot of candidates this question so far the cycle, and it's yielded some really interesting answers, and really not a lot of them have been the same. But you're running to join what is now a 25 member caucus in the House. You know, the Democrats in Frankfurt haven't really been able to pass much meaningful legislation. And right. really, there's been a lot of bills that have been passed that the Democrats haven't been able to stop at all. So why do you want to be in the House? And what do you hope to accomplish once you're able to get there? I don't know about accomplish as like, you know, passing legislation, but, you know, just a guide on the right path of legislation, not some rogue legislation like what has happened in the last general assembly, which uh, was was terrible, but I uh, definitely wanted to be there as a people's representative. I I have no intentions to go out there to represent any corporate interests or any interests. You know, myself I, as a designer, I'm not going out there to you know you know represent two fashion designers in Kentucky. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm 44. I'll be 45 at the end of the year. I'm in that generation when middle class was something that was sustainable. Now, when you mention middle class, it's almost just adding middle class to lower income, upper lower income status. And I've just seen friends who are struggling with, you know, jobs, holding jobs right now uh, that are not their fault. Healthcare, uh, myself, 
Um, I'm a person with a disability, and uh, healthcare is a flight 365 days a year. <laughs> and just, you know, hearing those stories, I want to be able to have that voice that will stand up for people who believe their voice aren't being heard loud enough. And, you know, just be there to be that megaphone for, for the people. Yeah, that all makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about your district. So the 93rd is a new district. So it's mostly between New Circle Road and Manowar Boulevard between Fayette Mall and Alumni Drive, um, with the largest landmark probably being like Tates Tates Creek High School. And previously, this district was largely represented by Susan Westrom. Um, Tell us what is special about this part of Lexington to you and you know, like what you've learned about it since starting your campaign. Well, I grew up in what is now the, the 93rd district where I grew up was across man of war across from what, it, what is now the 93rd district. I am a taste Creek high school alumni and the, the elementary and middle school I went to is in the 93rd district. Also three of the several schools are in the district and I actually, when I moved moved to Lexington, Mid Ward wasn't fully fully complete yet. The housing, the eighties housing boom was happening, so I've seen that area go from half farmland, half mm-hmm. suburban to blown full blown out suburban yeah world out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the house I that the second house I grew up in. Uh, was actually um, got to see built, and we're the first family to live in there. So that's how far back I go with that district. Taste Creek High School is a landmark. Just for you know, for random information, um, the Backstreet Boys had their first ever concert at Taste Creek High School. <laughs> well, that's special for sure. <laughs> I was present to see that concert. Uh, so I love the landmark status right now. <laughs> I I still know people who grew up out there and now they're raising their families out there. Mm-hmm. It's a part of me. It's I, I the layout and everything, you know, I it's a part of me. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds actually a lot like where I'm from. I grew up in Middletown, which actually isn't too far from where uh, Jasmine lives now. It's about like 10 to 15 minutes east of there. But yeah, I can definitely relate to that where it was, you know, when I was a kid, it was like there were barns, like not too far from my house. And now it's just like there's a new apartment complex going up like every other weekend, it feels like. Uh, Right. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) And and representing, Uh, yeah, representing a place like that could be a potential challenge, I think. Yeah, just for uh, just for example, I lived in a you know after college, I lived in other cities, moved back and forth. Um, but when my family came here in 1985, Tate Creek Road outside of Armstrong Mill was a, a one lane road, and we lived in a developing subdivision. But once you got past Armstrong Mill, you were going to farmland to <laughs> to get home. So I you know I I've seen that whole boom happen and. You know, second boom <laughs> yeah absolutely well, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah uh well you know we you mentioned this already but uh you know we wanted to talk we, we wanted to talk to you like we've talked to a lot of different candidates about you know bringing your whole self uh and, and your Id- intersecting identities uh to frankfurt and, and you know you are a black man who uses a wheelchair you know you identify as a person with disability um you know that's not a type of person that we've seen on the floor in frankfurt before um, Correct. And, and you know how 
are your identities going to inform your service at the Capitol? And what do you hope to represent to other folks who, who look like you uh, when they see you as a, as a state representative? <sighs> That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Just with my identity, uh, black, disabled, male. But I, I want to bring all that up there. And I just want to bring a paradigm shift up to Frankfurt of first black. You know, we, I'm not sure in the statewide, statewide demographics, but I know for the 93rd district, um, the black African-American um, identity population is only 10% of that district. But I know there has been a, a part of that population have been in that district for years, decades and stuff. So they're a part of that district. They're not, it's not a part of a transient population so i want to go represent that disabled it is wow um a very underrepresented population with invisible disability you know there may be legislatures in frankfurt that does have a disability but not a visible disability but you never you never see that so i want to come there and be like individuals with disabilities also have a voice up here. Um, healthcare is really key issue uh, nationwide and also state. And I just want to get up there and be like, hey, like I'm fighting with insurance right now. <laughs> and just be like, it matters. Like, you know, people with disabilities matter. As you heard in the last couple of years, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> So I I just want to cross those those intersectionalities and you know try my best to represent those and also everybody else in the district you know cross both lines you know I'm not going up there for one part you know to represent only one party or one demographic or you know, one interest, you know, I'm going to cover all that and be, be the voice for them, you know, you know, be that loud voice. Hope that, I hope I answer that for you. Yeah, no, I, I think you did. And I think that's a really true point that people with disabilities are often underrepresented. Even when we talk about inclusivity people with disabilities often even get left out of that conversation too um so you definitely have um an important voice to provide in frankfurt um we you know we've talked about you as a candidate and your district a little bit but we do want to talk about policy a little bit um this past legislative session a lot of bad bills passed and a few not so bad bills passed from your perspective what were some of the highlights and lowlights of the 2022 session I know the number one, which is my one of my number one priorities, is education, uh, especially with the charter uh, charter school legislation. That was just horrible. What <laughs> what they're trying to attempt or what they're getting to attempt is just horrible. Also, again with education, um, not giving a mandate on teachers' raises. Um, that is. <laughs> That is just horrible. Um, there's a whole list of horrible things. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, 
But on the good side, it's that's hard to say. hard to say. Also on the good side, <laughs> um, the job development that the um, that the governor is bringing in, and I know the other side is going to try to say, you know, it was all about the, you know, that's how the governor governor brought the jobs because what they did, and but um, that um, there's not much good stuff to that's you know popping off right now you know yeah i just a, just a quick follow-up there you, you know you mentioned charter schools and and one of the big criticisms that i have heard about charter schools is there's no real requirement for them to you know include lots of different types of students in uh, those schools Correct. and and one of the things that people anticipate happening and has happened in a lot of other places is that students with disabilities especially students with visible disabilities and students in wheelchairs you know will be uh, you know will remain in the public school system uh, with fewer dollars that are going to those schools uh, and, and you know we, we asked you already about about you know what it means to be a representative of a disability but you know uh, how could you bring your experience as somebody who graduated from a public school and who has a disability um how would those i mean do you feel like your story uh w- would help to uh you know talk, talk about that from more of a realistic yes, instead of hypothetical yeah. perspective yeah definitely just i came in came into the public school system in the mid 80s uh i think i was in kindergarten in 1983 um but i went and this was before Anything of uh, American with Disabilities Act, a lot of educational reform with disabilities and stuff. I was mainstream into public school from day one. <laughs> My mother was like, "No, he's not going to go into a special program." And so I, I could get that aspect of being the only disabled kid in a public school, or the only disabled kid and black kid in a classroom. And get that aspect of, you know, just development from just in the time span I was in, you know, elementary school to graduating high school, the first uh, not being included and graduating into inclusion into the classroom. I, 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 I've seen that from, from both ends where, you know, example in elementary school, if my if my class went on a field trip, my mother had to, my mother, grandparents, or relative had to drive me to that field trip instead of riding, riding the bus with the kid, you know, with classmates and stuff. And, you know, to where, you know, by the time high school was over, they made sure I had a real wheelchair accessible bus for a field trip. So, you know, just that, that's perspective. I think it's really complex uh, supporting public schools, but also recognizing the problems that a person with disability faces in public school, especially when there's a lack of resources. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really afraid charter schools uh, will go back to the 1970s, early 1980s and, you know, go on the wayside. I'm really afraid, especially with those that who have, you know, more multiple disabilities or not in what 
not in the box where Americans sees has a disability has a has a disability in the school. You know, just for example, on the autistic spectrum. Yeah, I you know I think education is one of the issues that Democrats have honed in on, and then some of the others are medical marijuana, sports gambling, and then a little bit of, you know, expansion of civil rights and criminal justice reform. Um, That's kind of like the Democrats agenda. Do you think that those are the right issues to focus on? Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, Just starting from, uh, from the bottom, uh, just with criminal justice reform, uh, all this I've seen in the last couple of years, especially 2020, where things have gone <laughs> and especially today um um the president just signed um signed an executive order on on a couple pieces of uh police ref- police reform but that's an executive order where has you know if they could pass the george floyd policing act that's permanent so you know we have to address things like that yeah, definitely. For you specifically, you know, what are the issues that you see yourself personally championing in Frankfurt? You know, is there is there a bill that you already know you want to file? I don't have any specific bills I want to file, but definitely uh, one focus on on criminal justice reform and just not policing reform. Also, uh, reform uh, reform in prisons and incarceration, uh, definitely looking at the disparities in incarceration in, in Kentucky. I believe Kentucky has one of the highest numbers incarcerated in the nation. Mm-hmm. They do. And, you know, be able to address things like that. Um, here in Lexington, we just got a county attorney that's actually going to look at things, uh, at disparities with that. So definitely want to ride coattails on that on the state level to address that. Also, again, um, education. Um, I was in I was in school when care the care reform was passed, and now it's just like we have gone full now the first full circle, one hundred eighty degrees back to yeah <laughs> back to where we are. Um, also, reinstating the correct funding for for higher public higher institutions in the state. Um, it just seems like, you know, people are struggling with jobs, you know, students are struggling with staying in school tuition. So, you know, how do, how do students expect to, you know, get a, you know, get a good job where they're coming out of college with almost six figures of debt? That's one of the things we we definitely need to focus on with the great institutions that we have in Kentucky uh, of higher education. So, yeah, no, I, I agree with you totally. Uh, while you know Democrats haven't been able to make a lot of headway in in the funding for for K through twelve education that they've wanted to, they've made a lot of news and, and talked about that issue a lot. And I definitely think post secondary is something that there needs to be more conversation around because you're exactly right. right. Like the lack of funding has led directly into the student debt crisis that we're seeing. Uh, and, and one way that we could really take a chunk out of that is if we appropriately funded our post secondary education institutes, uh, like a lot of other states have started to do again. Uh, Kentucky has right. not. Yeah. Um, right. One of the things about, uh, 
about you know we, we we can say or you can say all these things that you support uh but of course it's going to be tough to get them through um and, yeah and, and we're you know this is another thing that we ask nearly everybody we talk to is just kind of like what's your approach to doing this um how are you going to work in frankfurt you know with the republicans on the floor um what are you going to do to build relationships what are you going to do what's your vision for for being able to get some of this through knowing that you're going to be in that super minority if you get there if it's good, sensible legislation, um, you know, I'm willing to work in the middle of the aisle. You know, I'm not going to come in there and be like, I'm the hard-headed Democrat and, you know, Democrat until I die, <laughs> uh, die attitude. I'm, I'm, I hate to use the middle of the, you know, media in the middle of the road, but, um, we got to compromise right now. Um, just with that super majority, you know, if it's good legislation, I want to back it up. I want to support it, you know, yell for it. Um, but it's bad legislation. I, I, I can't stand for it, you know. You know, I think the only way to accomplish anything there right now is it is to meet somewhere in the middle with someone, find right, some right. common ground where you can work with someone, um, even if it means, you know, having to give up your name being on a bill, um, just working with Republicans to try to get positive legislation passed. Correct. My, my goal is to be up there to, to better all Kentuckians. You know, I don't have one demographic I want to represent or stand up for, you know, if it's going to help my, the citizens of my district plus the rest of Kentucky, I'm there. You know, yeah. you know, we have too many issues that, Kentucky's facing that could be fixed easily and you know common common ground will solve that yeah yeah, yeah. it'll definitely be um c- difficult in Frankfurt but you know it sounds like you're up for the challenge before we let you go how can people get involved in your campaign Okay, they could come to my website, uh, LameenSwan.com. And also, we're on almost all social media channels, uh, the most recognized ones. Uh, I'm still trying to learn TikTok and like Snapchat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. That's why I want to hire like an 18 year old to, you know, to, you know, just run like, you know, TikTok. <laughs> but uh, Instagram, Facebook, I am on there. Um, more welcome to anybody that's interested in volunteering website could sign up very easily and be glad to have you on the team. Awesome. Uh, before we let you go one more time, can you spell your name for people so that they know where yes. to go? Yes. It's L A M I N S W A N N.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Lamine, we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays with our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.